Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is sponsored by TJB Web Media, a New Jersey SEO marketing and WordPress web design company for businesses, churches, and nonprofits. Today's podcast is a message from 1 Peter, where John is in chapter 1 of 1 Peter in the very beginning, and today he talks about girding up the loins of your mind. Without further delay, here's Johnny. I'm going to continue our study in 1 Peter here this morning. Peter's a little difficult to follow. Did you know that? Now, Paul, when he writes a letter, and it is, it's almost like a legal document, you know, just boom, 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 boom. And it's patterned just the same. All letters are patterned the same. But Peter, he was a wild man anyhow, so I would expect his letters to be wild as well. And he incorporates a whole bunch of stuff in just a few verses, as we've seen so far in the very first chapter, where he has described for us the fact that we have been begotten again of God. That means we are born again, receive a new life, and not only that, but we have an inheritance just like Jesus. We are joint heirs with Christ. An inheritance, so we inherit all that God has. Now that just blows my mind. I can't even fathom that. Really. I just I have to accept it on faith because I can't even I can't even reason it out. All that God has, we are joint heirs with Christ. We receive it. We're gonna get it. And he calls that the basis, really, of our hope. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's described that hope for us, that we are begotten again unto a living hope. And he tells us right off the bat that you have this hope, which he explains as joy, unspeakable and full of glory in spite of all your suffering. And that's where we were last week with it. We were looking at issues about our suffering and what God is doing about it, what He's planned for it. But Peter just simply assumes that we understand that the hope that He's given us will cause us to endure any kind of suffering now that hope is what I've repeated over and over again as the fact that God is doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Therefore, you can relax. You can chill out. Even in times of suffering. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, in the whole last half of that chapter, describes our relationship to sufferings in this world. 
And he assures us that we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. In other words, a lot of Christians have the idea that, and I think they get this from well-intentioned, but ignorant evangelists that are doing a little Madison Avenue advertisement when they say, Jesus is the answer, right? And they assure you that if you trust Jesus, all your problems will go away. I've come to understand that when you trust Jesus, your problems just begin. Now, it's not because you trusted Jesus necessarily, because you're going to suffer anyhow. Because it's in that context that Paul tells us, look, the reason we're suffering is we live in sin-cursed bodies that are falling apart, and a sin-cursed world is falling apart. That causes us all to suffer. So we're going to suffer anyhow, whether we trust Jesus or not. We're going to suffer anyhow, whether we suffer with the endurance of hope that God gives us or not. So I was tempted here today to just go on and launch in a launch off on a study, a little side study of suffering, but we'll come back to that a little later. So he assures us that we, in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our suffering, we believers can, in fact, experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. What that means is we can have an inward peace and calm we can have an inward hope even in the middle of our suffering now i know that many of you have already experienced that we're experiencing it now or have experienced i don't know i have but then he goes on to tell us that it is our faith, which God gives us, that actually results in the salvation of our souls. And I want to comment on what he calls salvation of our souls here. And he's talking about the complete package deal. Okay, He's not talking about a little bitty salvation. He's talking about the total salvation. What he means by that is not only are you saved by God from the guilt and penalty of your sin. Now, you all know what the wages of sin is, right? Very clear in the Scriptures, the wages of sin is death in one form or another. Not just physical death, but also relational death, personal death, social death. And we have been saved from the guilt and penalty of our sin in the past. And we shall be in the future saved from the very presence of sin when we exchange this mortal sin-cursed body for a glorified body fashioned after the body of Jesus and His resurrection we all have one a body like that reserved for us in the heavenlies. And when we receive that body, 
we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. So you've got the past tense and the future tense here. But what about in between? See, that's what Peter's concerned with right now. How is God saving you daily? How is He saving you, in effect, from the habit and power and dominion of sin in your life? This is a little... It's been a little overlooked in my estimation for a long time, and I'll explain why here in a minute when we get into the context. People haven't really studied this a lot. How God is actually saving us today. And I want to just give you a little bits and pieces out of what Peter said here in this first chapter, and then we'll get to the verses we're going to study here in a moment. Go back with me to chapter one, or the first of the chapter 1, where he says that he calls us the elect, God-chosen, that's the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's what I mean by Peter. He puts a lot in here. What does he mean by that? He means simply this, that it is God, according to His foreknowledge, that has saved us, and He is in the process of setting us apart. That's what sanctification means. Setting us apart for His use. This is only natural, really, when you understand it. Why does God leave you here when we've got this glorious inheritance? Why does He leave you here in this world filled with suffering? The reason He leaves you here is because He is sanctified. He has set you apart for His use. He intends to use you. And I can tell you, pretty well assured, that He's been using you whether you realize it or not. God is using you for His purpose, His plan. That's what He means by sanctification here. Unto obedience. Now this is where we've got to walk the fine line. Because the verses I'm going to read to you here in a moment sounds like it's all up to you. But it's not. Peter knows that. It's not all up to you. It's up to God through His Spirit. Now again, he introduces us somewhat to that when he, he talks about in the, in the verses 10 through 12, he talks about the fact that the old prophets, the old ancient prophets of Israel, predicted this salvation of your soul in a very special way. The one that I use as an example is Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied that God would make a new covenant with humanity. 
And that new covenant would be radically different than the old covenant. The old covenant he made with Israel and therefore all humanity at Mount Sinai. And in essence, essentially what the old covenant said was simply this. If you behave yourself and live according to God's laws, not do anything bad, do everything you're supposed to do, God will bless you. But if you don't behave yourself, God will curse you. You see, that old covenant mentality is what remains in all of us because all of us have been raised up under a rule system of one sort or another. The good news that Jeremiah proclaimed was God is going to make a new contract with you, a new covenant, a new deal with you. And this deal is unbelievable because it's all of God. God said, I'm going to write my law on your hearts and I'm going to put it in your inward part. I am going to make you do according to my will. Paul described it as, it is God working in you both to will, to want to, and to do His will, His good pleasure. That's the function of a new covenant, the first term of the new covenant. The second is you're not going to have need that other people tell you about me or what I've said. You're going to have a close, personal, intimate relationship with me. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. John described that in his first general letter as each one of you have received an anointing. We call it an unction or an anointing of the Spirit so that you can understand what God is doing in your life, in the world, and others around you. The third point of the new covenant is the most astounding. He said, your sins and your iniquities, all the time you've blown it, all the time you haven't kept my law, all the times that you've screwed up, I will remember no more. And as I've explained over and over again, you know, if, if you did something to hurt me, if you did something bad against me, maybe I would forgive you, right? I might be able to forgive you with the power of God, but I'll never forget what you did. Never. I'll remember it from now on. Oh, I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. Well, God doesn't just forgive you. He forgets. Well, how can He forget or forget? By creating you a brand new person in Christ Jesus with the righteousness of Christ so that the new you never has sinned, is not now sinning, and never will sin. That's how God can forget your iniquities because the new person He's created you to be didn't have any sins or iniquities. Never. Now, an interesting part of the new covenant is the contrast Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 3 
with the old covenant he contrasted to the old covenant is a covenant of law it means you got to behave yourself under these rules right the new covenant is a covenant of grace which means god's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself and your only obligation under that new covenant is to believe what he says is true to believe what he says about you so in the contrast in second corinthians 3 paul contrasts what he called the letter of the law the letter of the law is your interpretation of the rules okay how you interpret it in your own mind and there are various interpretations of the law right according to different people they interpret one this way and another that way but the letter of the law is your interpretation of it your understanding of what god is demanding under the old covenant that's all you had all you had was your own interpretation and understanding of what god had commanded but under the new covenant you have something far better to rely on than you trying to figure out what God wants and how to do it. Something far better. And that is the Spirit of God Himself living in you. You have the one who wrote the law living inside of you. And that new person God has made you to be. You have the Spirit of God to tell you, direct you, teach you, guide you in every step of your daily life. Now, that is such a contrast, it's unbelievable. It's like night and day. So when what Peter is really talking about is this new covenant of grace that was prophesied by Jeremiah and the other prophets actually coming to pass now you can imagine that first century how radical that was because the only thing people knew about was i gotta be good i gotta try hard i gotta try my best not to screw up and when i do i've got to set i gotta make a sacrifice in the temple a trespass offering to cover my sins and on top of that, I've got to have a high priest to make an atonement offering on the Day of Atonement. A very special offering in which God would cover the sins of all the people. Not so in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, God is working radically different with us. He is working through His own Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, Jesus, living inside of the new person you are to lead you, direct you, guide you into all truth, as well as comfort you. Now, based on all that, we're coming to the Scriptures I want to read to you right now, and it, it gets a little, little confusing here, so I'll try to clarify it as we go. Getting in verse 13, Peter says, Wherefore, because of all that, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be given 
or be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now again, this one verse is a big mouthful here. What in the world is he talking about girding up the loins of your mind? Basically what he's saying is you've got to get your head together here. Okay? You need to get your thinking right. You need to set your mind and your thinking right. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to need to quit thinking about the old covenant and our efforts and our abilities to keep the rules. We got to quit thinking about ourselves and our ability to do something or not do something. We've got to start thinking about what God is doing. You see, I see this all the time when I talk to folks who are usually very frustrated and we're counseling, if I'm counseling with them, they're frustrated because they can't figure out what they ought to do about any given situation, about their husband or wife or kids or job or any of that stuff. I can't figure out. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And they're trying to figure out what to do. As if, if they figured out what to do, they could do it. That's the problem. You can figure out what to do and you still can't do it. See, I had this problem early on, even years ago before when I was young, I had this problem trying to figure out how I was going to do what God wanted me to do. And it really bothered me. Because even though I, even though I didn't know everything God wanted me to do, I knew there were certain things He wanted me to do or not do, and I did them, or I didn't do them. And that was a real problem. I didn't gird up the loins of my mind. Okay. I didn't brace my mind. I didn't set my mind on the new covenant. I focused on the old. See, when you're focusing on you and what you're going to do, you're focusing on the old covenant. And you miss out totally on the blessings of the new covenant. Instead, we need to focus our attention on what God is doing. What God has done. What He's doing now. And what He will do. Our focus needs to go on Him, not ourselves. Now, undoubtedly, that was a tough lesson for Peter to learn. You go back in the biographical information about Peter. And he had a heck of a time, didn't he? Remember in the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter boasting in the upper room with the other disciples, I'm going to go with you even if it means death. And Jesus said, no, you ain't. You're going to deny me three times. Remember that? See, it took Peter a while to realize he could not live his life under the old covenant that he had been trained in. He just couldn't do it. And so there's a, a changing of the mind that is required. And by the way, that's elsewhere called repentance. A 180 degree change in your thinking. 
And so when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, what he's really talking about is a change in thinking about yourself, about God, particularly a change from the old covenant to the new. But that's not all. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be sober. Wake up. Look around. Be watchful. Look for that grace. Don't be looking for what what you can do or not do according to your rules or your standards. Be looking for what God is doing according to His grace. It's so radically different than the way we're naturally trained and naturally conditioned. Because the first thing we want to know is, what shall I do? What shall I do? Like we can do something. No, the first thing we need to focus in on is what is God doing? How is He operating here? What is He accomplishing? And of course, when He says, and hope to the end, or completely, for the grace. That's the new covenant. For the grace. The grace of God. Remember, I've defined grace for you on a number of occasions. Let me just remind you again. The grace of God is never to be confused with mercy. God is merciful. And when you screw up, flesh flashes, God doesn't hold it against you. He forgives you. He's merciful that way. And His mercies are renewed every day. But that's not grace. Grace is a supernatural way God is working in you through His Spirit to keep you from screwing up in the first place. That's grace. It's the way God is working in you through His Spirit to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus. And that grace is at work already. So, Peter tells us, hope to the end, or completely, for the grace that is brought to you through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I like to practice it in this way. I don't know, it may just be me and my weirdness, but... The way I like to practice it is when I, I have a problem I'm trying to deal with or issues, just everyday issues of life. I'll go get me a cup of coffee and sit down. And while I'm drinking that coffee, I will visualize in my mind Jesus sitting next to me. Because He is. And in fact, Paul said, don't worry about anything because the Lord is at hand. He's right here. He's with you. He's in you and you're in Him. He's with you. And so I like to visualize Jesus sitting there next to me and to be able to talk to Him about what He's doing, what He's going to accomplish. Now, that is the hope that we have the confidence, the joyful, confident expectation about our future. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. Why? Because 
we're living not under law, but under grace. It's a brand new lifestyle that God has given us. Remember, we studied that lifestyle in, in detail when we did the contrast between a lifestyle of law and lies and lifestyle of grace and truth all through our study. But he goes on to say, as here's how we're to live, focusing on the grace of God as obedient children. Obedient children. Hmm. I wonder what that means. Well, it comes from the word obey, obviously, and the word obey is comes from a Greek root word for faith. Did you know that? Faith and obedience are basically the same. You can't have obedience without faith. And you can't really exercise faith without obedience. So we are going to live our life, this new, live, new lifestyle, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts or desires in your ignorance. What kind of former, former lust or desires are we talking about? We're talking about the general, the general way and the desires of our heart that we have lived all our lives by. Thinking, I will be okay. I will be loved, accepted, and forgiven, secure. I will be important. My life will have meaning and purpose, and I will be adequate if such and such happens. If I can do this, or if I can do that, or whatever you fill in the blank with after the if, it's a lie. An absolute lie. Yet we've all grown up thinking that way. You know, the most common standard thing in our culture is I'll be worthy if I win the lotto, right? Well, in a sense, you would be, right? I've often thought about it, you know. You go down and buy a lotto ticket in faith, right? And the way you buy a lotto ticket in faith is to use Bible verses as your numbers. But lo and behold, you actually win the lotto. And it's not just a little cheesy, you know, $100 million or million dollar lotto. This is a $100 million lotto, and you win it. Now, according to the world standards, would you be worthy? Of course you would. You would be loved. You would be surprised how many friends you had. You would be accepted anywhere you wanted to go, man. They'd bring you in to their private clubs anywhere. You would be forgiven. People, oh, don't worry about that, man. There's no problem. That's in the past. You would be respected, important. In fact, it wouldn't be just important. You'd be a VIP, right? Very important person. And your life? would have meaning and purpose to it. The city fathers, every preacher around would tell you what you could do meaningfully with that money. Would you be adequate? Of course you would. If you couldn't do it yourself, you could hire it now. So you have a false sense of security in that money. That's what 
Peter's saying here. Don't walk according to that false sense of security and significance in which you walked in your ignorance. Before you found out that your worth is not based on what you do, your performance, not what other people think about you. Your worth is not based on any of that. It's based entirely upon who God has made you to be in Christ Jesus. And so Peter said, obedient children, you're not going to be walking in your former lust, in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, or conversation is old English word for your lifestyle, in every aspect of your life. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now he's going all the way back to Leviticus there, and quoting Leviticus when he says, God says, you be holy because I'm holy. But here we have that same problem again, and this is where it gets tricky. How are you going to be holy? Hmm? It says right here, be holy, right? Well, how are you going to do that? Most of us don't even know what holy means. Never mind how to do it, right? But I got the good news for you. You all are holy. Did you know that? You are. Because you all are saints. You know what saint means? It means you have been set apart for God's use. And He intends to use you. That's what makes you a saint. So when He says, be holy, as God is holy, what He's talking about is not for you to switch back over the Old Covenant again and try your best to be holy, whatever that is. No. In fact, among religious folks, there's a movement called the Holiness Movement, right? And what does the Holiness Movement say? Well, there's certain things you can do and say and certain way you can live, certain way you can dress and all that, and you'll be holy. No, you won't. You'll be religious. You won't be holy. Now, well, what does he mean then? You be holy as your Father is holy. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew when He said, You be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how can you be that way? Well, I'm not going to get into the technical language here in the Greek, but let me just suffice it to to say this is what he is calling on you to do. He is calling on you to allow yourselves to be made holy. Allow yourselves, it's, see it's written in a passive voice, so it's not something you do, it's something that's done to you. And who made you holy? God made you holy. In the crucifixion of His Son on the cross, God included you. And it, at that moment, when Jesus was crucified, not only did He die on the cross, but you, the person you were naturally born into in this world, died with Him. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, 
you are crucified with Christ. Buried with him. And when Christ was raised up from the dead, you were created a brand new person and raised up from the dead with him. That makes you holy. Set apart for God's use. Again, it's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of what you believe. Now these last verses here, I'm going to read to you in in this context down to verse 21. I'll just read the whole thing to you and then comment on it quickly. He says, after the call to be holy, and if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, if you're calling on the Father who is impartial, an impartial judge of every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. When I first read that, I thought, dang it, man, we're contradicting ourselves. Either we're saved by grace or we're saved by works. And he says here, look out because God is going to judge it so you pass the time of, of your existence here on earth in fear. No, that's not what he means. That's not what he's talking about at all. What he's talking about is the fact, and it'll be explained in the verses following, but what he's talking about is the fact that who you live in and who lives in you is so awesome that you need to recognize the depth of you being in Christ and Christ being in the Father and you being in Christ in the Father. You need to understand that. That's that's what he means by pass the time in fear here. He's not talking about you being afraid of God. It's that you have a reverential respect for his awesomeness, for what he's doing. And it also means that you're looking. You're watching him. You're looking for God to work in your life every day in different ways. How many of you know that God's concerned about the little stuff as well as the big stuff? Oh, yeah, he is. And when you begin to see him at work in your life, you begin to recognize how awesome he really is. How he does, in fact, work all things together for your good. Amazingly. And so he goes on to explain a little more here. He says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain or empty conversation or lifestyle, you're not redeemed from that old lifestyle under the law with perishable things, corruptible things, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb slain or a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by your efforts to be holy. Not by your efforts to quit sinning. Not by any efforts on your part. You were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ which is more precious than the gold. Seeing you have purified yourselves or your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto 
unhypocritical or unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And we'll come back and talk about this a little more in a later study. But generally for today, what he's talking about here is the fact that God not only saved you spiritually by making you a brand new spirit being, He not only saved you individually, but He has also saved your life here and now. In other words, He has as much to do with your everyday life right now as anyone. Yet, that's that's so opposite to how we think, isn't it? Think about that. Who's important in your life right now? Just ask yourself that question. Who are the important people in your life? The ones you want to be buddies with, the ones you trust, the ones you are friends with. Think of all those important people. Where's God in that mix? See, Peter's saying, look, he is just as concerned about your lifestyle right now as he is about your destiny in heaven. And he's at work. He's at work in you because you are saints. You have been sanctified, set apart for God's use. Now that's all, as we'll tie in later on, that's all part of that joy unspeakable and full of glory he talked about. That's where it comes from, the satisfaction of knowing. You are one with God. You are being saved right now by God through His Spirit living in you, walking out a new life, a new lifestyle of grace and truth. Let's close in prayer. Father God, as we come into your presence, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation of our souls in every respect. We thank you, Father, that you're at work through your Spirit working in us and through us. And we ask, Father, to be glorified in our hearts and our minds right now. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.